Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Hello, this is Stephen Adams in the Global Council office, sort of in London, although socially distancing in accordance with UK rules. Um, welcome to this podcast uh, where myself and the GC trade practice lead, Daniel Caparelli, are just going to spend a few minutes taking stock of what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks as states around the world have responded to the COVID-19 outbreak with changes in their trade policy. Uh, clearly, it's been um, among many other reactions from states. The, the trade policy response has been varied and considerable, whether it's been bans on the movement of people, which is, of course, although we don't necessarily always characterize it that way, is, of course, a restriction on the provision of things like tourism services to uh, restrictions or partial restrictions on exports, the change in policy on imports. And what Daniel and I want to do is just give a sense of where we think the most important of those changes have been, but then to look ahead a little bit with respect to what this implies for the policy legacy of this period and what we might see changed permanently or semi-permanently in the landscape for trade policy in the wake of this crisis. Daniel, maybe I can just start with your headline take on what we've seen over the last 20 days or so. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I think that over the past 20 days, uh, we've seen a widening gap between what uh, governments are saying around the need to preserve uh, supply lines and ensure that uh, um, new trade restrictions don't come to add to the cost that businesses are facing or the ability of health services to procure uh, uh, critical equipment uh, and and drugs from what we're seeing in practice, which is essentially a, 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 a greater tendency uh, to uh, uh, resort to trade distorting measures uh, to uh, improve the security of, of, of the domestic supply lines. Uh, and we've, we've seen essentially two, two types of, um, of measures being in, introduced. Uh, as I mentioned before, there are those measures that are uh, uh, designed to, to uh, uh, improve the security of supply lines for critical goods, uh, and these can be divided into uh, export restrictions, as Stephen mentioned before, and um, uh, essentially a liberalization of the tariffs that are paid uh, uh, by importers of these goods in, 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 in domestic markets. And you've saying that in. Let's just let's draw out. The distinction there. So we've got a, a set of essentially restrictions on export, which is which are exports, which are designed to ensure an adequate supply. What form do those normally take? Well, these uh, are either uh, uh, um, uh, in the form of a outright ban on the export of these products uh, outside national borders, and you've seen that even in the context of the single market, uh, where you, 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 you had a number of uh, member states, including Germany, France, uh, and, uh, and uh, Romania, who uh, imposed uh, total bans on the exportation of these goods uh, uh, to other member states. And you have uh, the uh, type of export restrictions, and by this I mean the need to secure uh, pre-authorization from national authorities uh, to uh, export the good outside the national 
uh, uh, um, uh, frontier. And that's the sort of thing uh, we've seen in Brazil, in the EU, in Turkey, in a range of jurisdictions. Exactly. So you, you've seen that uh, in the EU, uh, which was uh, 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 introduced as a incentives for member states to dismantle their own uh, national bans on exportation of these uh, uh, critical uh, and essential products. Um, so, uh, uh, so essentially, you you see this as as a, as a uh, uh, you, usually as measures implemented at times of uh, high demand for these pro pro products, um, and 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 they differ, as you mentioned uh, before from uh, the measures uh, that have also been introduced by Brazil or by Canada and Australia to try to streamline the process of importation of these very same products to secure supply uh, and to um, domestic health services. So that's the second leg of this, which is essentially a wave of liberalizations, usually in the form of a reduction of an applied tariff for certain critical inputs. What, what sort of things are typically falling into that category? Well, here we're talking about um, the uh, personal protective equipment, uh, but also gowns and I mean, everything that is essentially used by uh, the, the, the uh, uh, frontline um, medical staff uh, in, in the fight against COVID-19. And what's your sense of how effective these measures are being? My sense is that they, I mean, there's two scenarios where these have been imposed or invoked. So there's one where these have been done preventively uh, or preemptively, uh, uh, which is essentially uh, uh, ensuring future supply uh, is, 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 is secured. And uh, in instances where the demand for that has already peaked in the case of Italy. And I think that it's important to distinguish between these two cases because on the first instance, what happens is that you're essentially just hoarding and, and preventing this to be allocated to countries that are, are experiencing peak demand at that particular time. Uh, and uh, from the other scenario where it's essentially vital to avoid these being exported rather than used, uh, the, uh, domestically right so one is one is essentially uh, a, a precautionary or a, a provisionary approach which as you say often translates into what looks like hoarding or stockpiling when you look at it from a global point of view the other is essentially a, a, a critical emergency measure during a period of uh, intense acute um, uh, acute demand there's another kind of there is another kind of trade policy response that we've seen, although we, we only really have the one example of it thus far, and it hasn't actually been implemented into law yet, which is what we've seen from the US over the last 24 hours, which is the suggestion that the US might choose to lower certain of its MFN tariffs on an applied basis to zero, and that that, of course, would exclude um, the, the current 301 tariffs on China, the current 232 tariffs on steel and aluminium, which apply across a range of US trading partners. Um, it, it would, it seem, include most current anti-dumping uh, tariffs in the US. Um, but of course, I guess the point is we shouldn't be thinking about that as a liberalization measure because it's not actually 
its its aim isn't to liberalize trade in anything its aim essentially is to provide short-term liquidity in the form of a tax deferral for uk us companies who happen to be importing yes exactly uh and and so so these measures are more about kind of a, a fiscal measure to ensure uh or or, or to help uh, and support the resilience of businesses experiencing um, uh, cash flow problems and 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 revenue problems, right? So right. And they are not in itself a, a liberalisation. Yeah, and that's well, that's important when we start thinking about uh, how sticky they might be. And on that subject, it's probably worth then pivoting to think a bit about what all of this means. So we've got a we have a range of um, uh, of restrictions on personal movement. We have a set of new protocols around export authorizations. We have a range of small scale targeted liberalizations of critical goods. And then we have at least prospectively in the US, um, the first tentative attempt to use um, uh, tariff reduction as a liquidity supporting measure for businesses. What do you think this implies for the landscape after the crisis? Well, I think that there's two types of kind of impact here that we need to, to, to distinguish. One is, is the tendency of trade restrictions uh, when implemented as emergency measures to stick around beyond uh, 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 the reasons of why they were implemented. And, and, and this is because uh, uh, there's a sense that these measures legitimize uh, 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 or are legitimate in, 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 in addressing a particular policy problem uh, and also because of adept uh, uh, lobbying and advocacy by those who are benefit from these uh, measures. I think that this is, uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how, how the export restrictions or requirements for pre-authorizations uh, uh, how how these evolve uh, in a post-crisis uh, uh, context, uh, um, and but also I think importantly how how the liberalisation of some of these tariffs uh, uh, um, or the debate around whether or not they should uh, stick around after the crisis uh, will will evolve, uh, and I think that this is one set of 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 implications that needs to be distinguished from from the other one, which is a much more, uh, uh, I think, lasting one, which is the impact that the crisis will have uh, on the debate around globalization and in particular around uh, the globalization of supply uh, and value added chains here. And we've seen this in, 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 in the US and we've seen this in the EU uh, uh, where you have uh, Trump administration officials like Robert Lighthizer, who, who although uh, 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 saying that uh, uh, the 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 crisis does not warrant the introduction of new barriers for the moment, in order not to um, magnify these uh, it, 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 it disruptions to supply chains, there's a clear uh, uh, case here for. Uh, starting a debate about the repatriation, simplification, and diversification of some of these uh, supply lines, at least for essential products, and in particular with regards to China. Uh, and this 
debate in, in the US, which can be expected from the Trump administration, has also uh, uh, been mirrored by some of uh, the statements coming out of the European Commission, which is uh, around uh, the need to ensure that the EU uh, is autonomous on, on, on the supply of uh, 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 some critical goods, uh, 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 such as medical equipment and et cetera, uh, uh, in a post-crisis context. So the question here is how this debate is going to evolve uh, and whether or not we're going to start using the same arguments around medical equipment for other products that can be seen as critical for national security in the case of the US or for uh, the uh, EU's um, economic sovereignty. Yeah, it does seem to me that it's going to take an existing debate around economic sovereignty, around the notion of strategic autonomy, which we've seen playing out in areas like advanced technology and very much, well, certainly apply it in areas like biomedicine or, uh, you know, or, or the supply of what are going to increasingly be seen as critical medicines and critical medical technologies such as ventilators. Um, but also, as you say, potentially more widely. And it strikes me that we've seen the US make some big decisions in the last 18 months or so around its relationship with China, obviously the 301 tariffs um, and, and the 301 agenda was nominally targeted at the attempt to try and resolve an issue of, 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 of um, specific problems in China around respect for intellectual property, enforced technology transfer, those sorts of things. But there's, there's always been an ambiguity in the Trump administration's ultimate aims. And there's always been a suspicion that at one level, some in the US administration would actually like to see the kinds of frictional costs that the US has imposed through tariffs on China actually becoming a permanent feature of the US's relationship with China, in, in part to try and incentivize US firms to repatriate production, but I suppose at the very least to diversify it away from China. And it seems to me that um, the crisis, the, the, the COVID crisis provides another reason to think that in the wake of this outbreak, we won't see a US administration in any particular hurry, of any stripe, I suspect, in any particular hurry uh, to remove those, those imposed frictional costs uh, on China. And, you know, more recently, uh, a month ago, we saw the US starting to suggest that it might contemplate withdrawing from the WTO government procurement agreement. Again, at the time, you know, we, 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 we wondered aloud uh, whether this was uh, actually about uh, trying to, element, uh, to introduce a new element of discrimination into, the, into US public procurement, or was it just really a, an attempt to build up leverage with trading partners and make them pay in negotiating terms essentially to to reintroduce the the protections that the government procurement agreement provides from the perspective of a month on and what's happening around us you you have to conclude that in the wake of this outbreak the us is much more likely to see a strategy like that as being one that allows it to introduce a new element of discrimination into public procurement, uh, particularly for medical technologies or drugs to make sure essentially to use its public procurement tool much more explicitly um, through, through, through by American you know, methodologies as a way of trying to guarantee what it sees as security of supply. So as you say, it seems to me that what the outbreak does is it takes a, it takes a thread that was already clearly emerging in trade policy making um, around 
critical technologies um, around the relationship between China and the rest of the world, China and the US, um, and, 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 and turbocharges it potentially for the, for the post-crisis post crisis world okay well clearly there's um, there's a lot to be watching uh, I mean as you'd expect uh, Daniel and the team at GC uh, are, are tracking these developments very closely on a day-to-day -day basis and we're working with clients constantly on both how to respond to immediate changes but how to think about the world of trade policy that the crisis is going to leave behind uh, you can uh, read Daniel's uh, writing on this subject on the Global Council website, which is www.global-council.com. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. <laughs>